So hi Nikolai. I think the first time in the history of AXFM the uh, the first name is pronounced right or perfect, right? Yeah, that was that was great, yes. <laughs> oh, perfect. <laughs> Because it's easy. So what was your first computer? Yeah. My first computer was an Amiga 500. Oh. Uh well, when was that? Oh my. I I, I can't tell, I think. Okay. I was too young. I I, I didn't think I didn't think in Quebec back then, you know, time was endless, so I didn't put a pin into that. But uh I would guess I must have been around 10, maybe. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. But time is endless. This is true. As I remember, you know, as a, uh, as a child, I mean, one year is, uh, is, is eternity. So it is really, yeah, exactly. yeah. And now the time flies. So you were 10, or around 10, right? And you get Amiga 500. Yeah. Amiga 500 was a dream machine for me. I always wanted to have one. This was like, you know, uh, an alien, <laughs> alien machine. <laughs> But um, what you did with it? What was your first action on the Amiga? Yeah, that, that's actually really interesting because I, <laughs> so here's the thing, right? I didn't know anything. My, my, my family neither. They bought me the thing because, you know, my, my other, other, um, kids had like a Commodore C64 and I was kind of like whining. I want to have something like that as well. And my dad scrapped some money together and got us that thing. But we didn't know anything about. And I remember that, you know, you would put in discs, uh, yeah. like, you know, uh, to, to play your games. Mm -hmm. But when you forgot that, Or when it was broke, it would boot into this weird blue environment that didn't know what it was. And like, like it took me years to figure out that, oh, I mean, I mean even back then I didn't know it was an operating system. I had no idea, mm -hmm. but I figured out, oh, I can do stuff here. Like I can, I can create files and I create like a small table where my dad and I put some, some of his financial information. That was one of the things we did with the Amiga, but mostly I just play computer games. Okay. And uh, so, I was really not a, not an early programmer or anything at all. I was just gaming. Okay. But uh, regarding the, uh, the blue screen, what you mentioned, was Amiga like C64 that it booted into the visu uh, no, visual basic, uh, basic environment or was it an operating system already? Yeah, it's more like an operating system. Like it's really hard to recollect because back then I didn't understand it at all. Uh, but I think, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of an operating system, very minimal one, okay. of course. But so um, I think you already could do stuff with the mouse. And, okay. Uh, yeah, we could. I, I remember back then <laughs> when I wrote when I wrote files, I didn't understand shift. So when I wanted to have a, like a capital letter, mm -hmm. I would hit caps lock, type the one letter, yeah. and then hit caps lock again. <laughs> oh yeah, of course, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, of course. <laughs> But uh, actually, the the caps lock key is absolutely pointless, right? If you think about this. But, but but why? How do you yell on the internet, Adam? Do you keep like holding down shift is so hard? Like yeah, yelling with caps lock is much easier. Yeah, you are right. So this is your Twitter, the Twitter key, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, yeah. cool. <laughs> hey, it's the angry Twitter key. Yeah, what games you enjoyed on Amiga? You remember? Uh oh boy, yeah, that was a long time ago though. So um, you are not I that recently, old. Recently, one of the one of the games. Got a remake and I watched, but I don't know what it was. I don't know what the name is now or back then, but I watched some YouTube video and somebody said like, Oh, this is a game I played. And I was like, oh, wait, no, it feels familiar. And said, oh, it, by, the, by the way, that used to be like an old Amiga or whatever game. Okay. And I think it wasn't exclusive. Um, I think it was Carrier Command. Okay. Uh, I played, uh, Settlers. Okay. Like there's a German board game, right? And there yeah. was, was a computer game variant of that. Um, oh boy, like back in the days when you had to click like each thing individually, I played, I think, Dune, right? The, the strategy game. Yeah. Was that Amiga? I I, no idea. I, I never had an Amiga, but I was just, yeah. I, I know some games because I was also C64 fan, but I had actually owned uh, ZX Spectrum. So, but uh, I really admired Amiga. So, 
Yeah, it was it was it was really nice to have one. Oh, by the way, I got busted for uh for illegal file sharing basically. Oh. <laughs> because back then you would go to the flea market yeah. and there would be this stand offering games, right? Just yeah. like copied games and you will and that's that's like the way I got games. I had no idea that anything was amiss. I was like, well that's that's where I buy them, right? Where else would I buy them? Yeah. So and then it's easy to copy discs. Yeah. And I had a couple of good games. So I was like, yeah, well, you know, I'm, I'm an enterprising small kid. My parents next go to the flea market to sell some stuff off the, yeah. um, uh, to sell some stuff off. I'm just going to tag along. And so I brought a couple of discs with me and I sold them. <laughs> and then a couple came up and they were like, oh, that's great. That's, we want to buy this game. Oh, cool. Yeah, sure. Oh, you know, but sometimes when you buy these games, they don't actually work at home. I was like, yeah, I know. That's, that's the actual problem. So like, but how can we be sure? Uh, maybe we can contact you. I was like, yeah, sure, no problem. Like, if it's a problem, I'll give you back your. I don't know. I paid like I think they paid like one or two marks per discs, yeah. which uh, is like half of that in euros. So the yeah. fifty cent, maybe a, yeah. a euro for a disc. And to me, as a kid, that was that was actual money, right? That was yeah, pretty right. cool. Like, I got got home after that with like twenty bucks. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And uh, so yeah, so then they uh, we got a letter, a cease and desist letter from the company running uh, the game that I sold them. Oh. <laughs> So they were they were working for the company collecting addresses, <laughs> and I guess nobody on the flea market gave them an address because nobody's stupid enough to do that. Okay. Uh, what happened to you then? Um, oh, nothing. They just wrote a letter like, you, "You can't do this. If you keep doing this, uh, we're gonna sue you. So ah. please stop." Oh, was a classic synthesis. This was your first enterprise, and this is how you end up uh, working for for Oracle, right? This was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I thought, like, you know what? It's time for me to send out these letters. Yeah, Where exactly. can I do that? Exactly. How can I be the mean guy kicking other people? In the now, now this so is on your the... on your very first slide, right? This is the like uh, uh, on yeah. your every presentation. You know, never copy yeah. games. Yeah. So, the, but but my mom was really scared. I mean, I was like, she because you know it's an actual letter from a like from, yeah, from a lawyer. Sure. And I was like, I don't know what this is about. Also, this is not okay. Okay, shit. Okay, so we better stop doing it then. <laughs> so we stopped, and that's that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What was your first, or you know, what is your first line of code, or why you start hacking something, you know, on the Amiga? I didn't at all. Like uh, back okay. then, I had no idea what anything is. Okay. Um, I was not like. I get that's actually a bit of a shame uh, because I think if I would have known that that's a thing that you can do, I might have had interest in it. Okay. I don't know. I mean, the other the other side of things is that like if, if you like if you're just coding just just for itself. Now that's fun to me because now I know I enjoy coding. So when I find like a new programming language, I just go online and do some stupid coding puzzles just to write try out TypeScript maybe, right? Yeah. So now I would just do random coding, but back then I guess. Like even if somebody somebody would have showed me that I can do this, I would be like, okay, but what can I do with it? And probably yeah. not much. So back then I didn't have any connection. The first lines of code I wrote was uh, in school actually, in high school. It was pretty late. I think it was tenth grade, so I would have been around sixteen. Okay. Um, it was Turbo Pascal. Okay. And so there is a there's a German called Hello Nikki, which is like hello, obviously, yeah. and then Nikki. So it's a uh, it's a simplified. In the end, I think it's just a library. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a simplified way to learn the language. Uh, you're, you're steering um, a robot through a labyrinth, right? So it's a 2D top-down vision of a labyrinth. It has like walls and, and pathways. Mm -hmm. And you can just go in each of the four cardinal directions and you can check whether there's a wall in front of you. Mm -hmm. And then you can use that to learn, you know, like go five steps ahead and then... No, do an if check if there's a wall, and if there is, go left or right, or mm -hmm. write a loop that just goes through, you know, stuff like that. So that's how we learn programming. Uh, so uh, it was not actually Hello World, but it was kind of similar. So that's my first programming experience. And so we then programmed in Turbo Pascal for two years. 
and a half years. And then in, in, towards the end of the 13th grade, okay. uh, the teacher introduced us to Java. Wow. So that was, that was actually really ahead of our time. That was 90s. Wait, that was 2000, 2001, maybe? Okay. If I got my numbers right, not entirely sure. Some, somewhere around that time. Um, so after so 9 11, cool. you know it? Was it, uh, it must have, no, 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 it must have been before. Okay. No, I graduated, I graduated, wait, let me think. Okay. So I'm born in 1983. Oh, so and I graduated, uh, 2002. But we, it was actually the last year of school. I think it was the second, the, the second to last year. So I think it was like early 2001, probably. Okay. Started with yeah, so that. I really, this is very, very early for a school, I would say. Yeah, really, it was. Uh, she was fresh from university. So maybe, I mean, that was the way she took. But the interesting bit about this was, I don't think she fully understood what all of this was about. And we surely <laughs> didn't. Because we're like, okay, so we've been programming imperatively in Turbo Pascal, like these okay. small toy problems, right? Yeah. For kids. And, you know, a little bit more stuff. We had like a small, we wrote a small chat client because of the Windows API, you can send messages over the network, right? So, but very, very rough, everything text-based, not a lot of code. And then somebody comes along and does like the full Java applet stuff. Like here's classes and here's fields and here's getters yeah. and all of that. And you're like, why, why is this so complicated? Why do I have to do all of this? I just want to get a file, yeah. <laughs> right? Like my 200 lines of code and be done. Why do I make, first of all, why do I turn 200 into 500 lines of code? Mm -hmm. And then why do I like share them all around the, um, uh, the file system, all of these different files? And I think the reason why, well, maybe, maybe she did actually explain it better. I just didn't understand. But my impression now is that maybe she didn't fully, uh, was, was fully able to explain to us what the benefits of this abstraction and indirection and encapsulation is that uh, she came fresh from university. So maybe she didn't, she never worked in a code base, which has like not 500, but maybe 500,000 lines of code. Yeah. And I guess like with the, if you have that background, then you can more easily see why that's actually an advantage. And then also tell people why that is an advantage, even though in their specific toy problem, it might just seem like pointless uh, boilerplate. Yeah, but with so objects, Java, you know, with objects, you can, uh, you can, if with Java, you can explain even without a huge code base, like objects, you no, know, like cars which have state and they accelerate, or robots which can shoot, you know. So yeah, um, we did all of that. Yeah, we did that. But okay. still, like, we, I think we, do you know the dining philosophers who have like yeah, a table? Yeah, yeah. Right. So we programmed that. So uh, we did program extra stuff with it, but the, still the question was like, but why do I have several files and why do I have like a field and then a getter and a setter? Why don't I just have like a data structure as a tour Pascal and then write my 200 line long as method or procedure and be done with it, right? But but actually what, what I remember is I started with C++ and then came Java and I had similar questions because in C++, um, I, I really liked the header files. They were separated from the from the from the implementation. And in Java, I had to write you know I had to write the files everywhere, and I didn't like it at the beginning. So that I had lots of files. Like, this is crazy. And you know the problem was as well that I had Windows back then, and you know the packages back then. No, not everything was lowercase, so Windows couldn't find you know the files. So it was crazy at the beginning. So um, by the way, regarding your Turbo Pascal experience, did you actually? Do you know that in Java there is a, a it's called I look it up robot Carl, and this is very similar to what you explain in Turbo Pascal, but it's in Java right now. And then actually by accident I started this once, and this is so small you know small creature, and you you write Java code it gets compiled and executed, and this is actually very similar to what you explain in Turbo Pascal. Yeah, I, I think I actually I think there's also an international version of this uh, Turbo Pascal thing. 
so but we speaking of Java, you you are a Java advocate and not you know Turbo Pascal advocate. So you know. yeah, no, no. I mean, I was trying to say that I think this is pretty pretty common because I think it is an interesting way to to teach people this yeah. uh, situation because it's like it's simple, right? It's very simplified. So you have like a, an environment in which you don't yeah. have to. Exactly. face like mm -hmm. an api or actually it is an api kind of but you don't have to face like all the complexity it's just like okay learn a couple of control structures and uh, call these methods or procedures or whatever and be done with it um so yeah so so but the thing is that uh, afterwards then so java so i, I didn't I, afterwards i went to university i studied math uh math and computer no, science math. as a minor hey how how hard was it studying math too hard that's uh, i can say it's too it was too hard actually it was I'm not sure. Like I'm, I'm. I have, I have trouble sitting down and working on my own on some huge project. Like for example, sitting down and working and like learning for six to eight weeks for, uh, you know, for the exams. Okay. So what I would usually do, I would reserve six uh, six weeks of my time to to, to <laughs> test to to learn for that, and then I would uh, not learn, yeah. not study. I would feel really horrible about it too. So I didn't enjoy myself, right? I was like, I get, I would get up in the morning and I knew I would have to study, but then I didn't. And then I, then I kind of felt bad about it. I was stressed out. So I, I did, I did nothing productive the entire day. I said I was stressed out. Uh, it wasn't like that from the first day of university, but at some point it started to become like that. And so after uh, the first two years, I mean, now we have bachelor's and master's and bachelor's after like three years, I think, and master's after five. In Germany back then, you had like the diploma after whatever, five years or however long it took. And you had like an intermediate diploma, which is not an official certification. It's just like something like an, like an intermediate step. And after two years, I realized, shit, I can't keep going like this. The math stuff is just too much and too hard. Like you can't just, like my, my grades weren't that bad. I used to just like learn everything in the last couple of days. Mm -hmm. But if you learn in a rush like that, you forget everything. And then every future exam becomes harder. Like I, <laughs> I was building on sand, right? But I was like, I was learning so late and so rushed that then the next exam would just be so much harder. And I realized like, I can't keep going like this. Uh, I already had computer science as a minor and I realized, you know what? Like there's like this theoretical computer science. That's fun too. So I switched, I uh, did theoretical computer science as a major then. Okay. And I wrote, uh, one of my diploma thesis was about temporal logic, wow. uh, a language over temporal logic strings. So basically uh, what you can do with that is you can write formal proofs that uh, your um, what's it called? A heart, the thing that makes your heart beat if you have to, a pacer, right? Okay. Uh, for example, the operating system for your pacer cannot crash. Like it's a short, like if it's a limited environment and you can model all the states, then you can use this to formally prove certain properties. Ah, okay. This is like the, the, the famous, you know, Laporte, right? He's the guy who also does the, uh, the, um, right now the formal proving that the programs are correct, right? There is a specific language for that right now. Uh, that's that's entirely possible. I'm not sure, but that yeah. So that could that could be uh, maybe even related. So I, I was very happy in in in, in, um, in um, theoretical computer science, graduated in that, and then realized, oh boy, this is like this is the same problem all over. <laughs> like my diploma thesis took me like it it, it took all out it took everything out of me. I realized, shit, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna stay at university. I'm just not cut out for that kind of work. Mm -hmm. What can I do then? Study computer science. What the hell can I do with it? Well, I did a little bit, did a little bit of this programming. And now that I think of it, it was fun. So, well, like, I, apparently I have to become a programmer now. Oh, great. That's going to suck. Well, but what else can I do? And then it turns out that programming is the perfect fit for my problem. <laughs> because, <laughs> like, programming is exactly the other way around. 
you sit down, you have a problem, and after like 30 minutes, you have a solution and a fix. You're like, oh, wow, hey, this worked. So cool. Mm-hmm. And you're like in this endless loop mm-hmm. of uh, a challenge and then frustration and search and then a solution and that feeling of accomplishment. And then you go on and you keep doing it. And it took me like a couple, couple weeks and I was hooked. And I had so much fun writing code. And I did a little bit of, of it during university. That's why I learned Java a bit better. So, uh, that's why I started coding in Java. It was, it, it's actually, it's really coincidental. If university would have taught me Python or JavaScript or C++, that would have, that's what I would have been now. Because the only reason why it ended up being Java really is that the university taught me Java. So when I apply for jobs, that's probably because I actually applied for some, for a company that used visual, visual basic net. Okay. Uh, and they didn't want me because I didn't have any experience with it. Yeah. Uh, so that's why I ended up with Java. And it was like, that was great luck. Like I really, I, I gotta say, I really feel like I lucked out. I think I, other ecosystems would have been fine as well, but I feel so at home in this ecosystem, in this community and with the technology that, uh, I really feel I was, I, I was undeservedly lucky because <laughs> okay. it was really like, it was like, I mean, university wasn't that bad, right? I don't want to make it sound too bad, but I didn't like, I finished it, but I took very little out of it. Like in the end, I was like, I'm not going to do that. That's the only thing I really learned. That's not what I'm going to do. What I'm okay. going to do. Uh, uh, how, how good yeah. were you with uh, differential equations or in math? You enjoyed that or not? Well, if you study math, then, uh, like if, then different, then, then solving anything is not really a thing that you have to do. That's what engineers sure. do. They solve problems. Yeah. So, uh, that's more like, okay, you know, we, we showed you how in theory these systems can be solved. Now let's move on. So I had only very little, uh, uh contact with differential equations. Because, yeah, because there are no multiple levels, they always, I was actually curious, uh, you know, how far you got with the differential equations. So, um, but what you learned then? So if you don't learn them, what was the craziest thing you had to, do you remember what you had to learn in math? In math? Mm-hmm. What was the craziest thing I learned in math? Uh, well, I have to say though, um, I did enjoy the topic in general, just mm-hmm. not sitting down and studying it specifically. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really liked that way of, um, of structuring thought. So I tried, when I wrote my book about the model system, I tried to write it in a, in a, in a certain sense similar to what, how I learned math, which is when you, when you study math, especially the first couple of semesters, uh, and you have like the script that back then for no discernible reason, <laughs> the, the, the professor would just go up to the chalkboard and just write basically his script by hand on yeah. the screaming chalkboard. Every one of us like struggling to understand because at the same time, we just have to copy the text. Yeah. And like in hindsight, what kind of teaching environment is there? Like who thinks that's a good idea to teach anybody anything? Mm-hmm. You're basically 80% of your mental capacity is spent just copying text and not making mistakes. And 20% is if you could try and desperately to maybe understand a bit because yeah, otherwise, you know, you have to learn everything at home anyway. Uh, so the more you understand now, the better, but you will have to repeat everything. And the same way the professor, like he's or she is busy, like basically just writing stuff on the wall. Yeah. Uh, and like, just like a, like a sub process is gr- going through the explanation. So that's really a weird system. But what I like was the structure of the script. You don't have just text. What you have, everything's like, that's a definition or it's a proof mm-hmm. or it's a corollary. It's a theory. Every kind of text has a, uh, has a purpose. Mm-hmm. And, and that purpose, like it's clearly marked. You get to begin and say like, this is the definition. And then you read that section with a specific mindset. You know, what comes now is not going to, uh, show me a new connection. It's just going to define a couple of, of terms that I need to know. And then later when somebody like, and then there's an example. And for example, 
you should be able, that's, that's a pet peeve of mine. I think you should be able to skip examples in a book. I hate it when an example teaches you something new. I want to be able, in theory, to skip all the examples and still have all the facts that I need to know. Mm-hmm. So, uh, something that you need to know, any fact should be presented elsewhere. And so when I wrote the book, I tried to copy that to a degree that basically all, all, each single paragraph, more or less, at least in my mind, had a purpose. And many of them were put in the book, but many said that's too many. You can't have like five call-outs on each page. You can't have like definition, definition, <laughs> whatever, note, example. That's too much. You have to kick most of them out. So that's a bit sad. Yeah, but it's also uh, easy to write, you know, because uh, you don't have you know, to think about a story. If you have always the same structure, it is very easy and very fast to write, you know, a book that, that way. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, still, it's still a book, so it's still good to put in some story somewhere, like why we're learning this, all that kind of stuff. But yeah, when it comes to the meat of it, I know um, that now, at first I tell you what the terms are, and then I, you know, maybe show some connections to how to do something. Oh, I'm very... No problem. Oh, yeah, right. So when you, so you still have to tell uh, some story somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. To make, to make the book more enjoyable and motivate yep. stuff. That's the thing that the that math scripts are sorely lacking. Nobody tells you why you want to learn this. They assume, well, you're here, right? So that's enough motivation for you. Yeah. Let's just do stuff. And I tend to fall into that trap as well. And I'm actually working on that. I try to think harder about how can I present things about Java to the people who watch or read or listen um, without assuming that they're already interested. Because okay. that's... My mind, my mindset. When I read the stuff online about Java, I'm like, I want to learn. Let, let's find somebody who explains it to me who w- already wants to learn. Mm-hmm. But when you make YouTube videos, uh, and, and I think that's the most that's the most uh, medium that puts the most highlight on this, most stress on this, is people are casually watching YouTube. Mm-hmm. They might, in general, be interested in Java. Otherwise, you know, why would they follow me or the Java YouTube channel? But maybe not in that instance. Maybe it's Friday afternoon. They're on the couch, you know, with a beer. Maybe they just have like 10 minutes before they have to run out. Mm-hmm. So then actually, yes, they're interested in general. But still, why would they be interested to spend time, which is always valuable? Because as we said earlier, it's not Atlas anymore. Why do we spend, why do we want to spend time on this now? And mm-hmm. I think I want to get, I want to really get better to not assume that everybody's already interested. Mm-hmm. But that's what, what, what most curricula do, right? In, in, in math specifically, they're like, okay, you, you, apparently you're interested, which sometimes you're not. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, let me just tell you stuff. And so in the book, you have to put in more like, okay, why are we learning this? What's the benefit on this? But when it comes to the meat of it, it's really like, like the structure. Here's a couple of new terms. Now let me show you how to do something with that. And then comes an example. And as I said earlier, I really try to to separate these parts and to always know what kind of paragraph I'm writing right now. And specifically the one about uh, not strewing facts all over, specifically in the middle of examples like, oh, by the way, in this example, we see that uh, there is a flag called all unnamed for at opens on the module system, right? Like that should not belong to an example that, oh, by the way, that's also a thing that I explained to you yeah. now that should be explained elsewhere and the example should use it. So, yeah. Just focused, okay. Um, yeah. Question regarding uh, math again. So, if you if you see <laughs> <laughs> if you see a math or formula, this interests me as a programmer. Um, as a mathematician, uh, can you immediately read it like a Java code, or what they do? They try you know to find examples. So, I you know what what I have in mind. You no know, crazy math formula. S- some formulas look for me or work almost like a for loop. You know what I mean? Like uh, yeah. s- some or yeah, some. Yeah, some. Like, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. And uh, if you look at that as a mathematician. You know what happens, or you know immediately uh, how you know the the diagram looks like, or curve, or oh. something like this. So first of all, so I don't get yelled at by actual mathematicians. I did 
my my the, my final diploma says I, I majored in computer science and math was my minor, so I wouldn't call myself a mathematician. No, but still. But yeah, so like that's a good question actually. I think there's a, a certain relation to uh, or connection to uh, programming languages and syntax specifically. Yeah. Uh, that. Uh, it's a yes and no answer. Like some some stuff I learned, right? Like for example, uh, sums obviously, and yeah. you know these products, and probably more that I forgot, and then also like matrices and eigenvectors and what all those notations mean. But it's really very much a language that you need to learn. So there is just uh, there will always for every for every mathematician there will always be formulas. I think that they will not immediately understand just because they may not be steeped in that specific subfield of maths nomenclature you know everybody uses their okay. own shortcuts i mean of course the sum symbol everybody uses that but what means uppercase phi or phi is, is what is in english in germany we say phi this greek letter right for just as an example yeah, let's say I think phi. That, uh, phi sounds great so keep yeah, let's say phi yeah <laughs> so what does that mean in this I, i'm just saying i'm just making this up right maybe phi has like a like a specific meaning that's always the case in everywhere like like the like this uh the sum symbol but there are certainly symbols that I learned that only apply within a certain, a certain subsection of math. And so if you know that, then you can read the formula. But if you don't, then then you can't. But you can look uh, it up quickly, right? So, I mean, there's no problem. Yeah. It's like, yeah. yeah that's, that's actually not that easy. Uh, and the okay. reason for that is that mathematicians are horrible at naming stuff. I mean, again, they write with chalkboard. Uh, they write with chalk on a chalkboard. So, obviously, they're not going to give anything a good name, right? So, it's always single letters. What are you going to search for? Oh, this like, is like math, a, phi? This is like <laughs> Scala or something like this, right? So. Yeah, maybe, yeah. It's like, take your program yeah. and then like shorten every variable to a single letter. And oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, but, but because what I thought about this, if two mathematicians would talk about the formula, they, could, they would be able to refactor it as well, right? Yeah, I mean, like in the end, uh, when you solve it, when you solve a, uh, when you solve an equation, yeah, it is just refactoring. Yeah, you're right. right. You're right. Because... Solving equation is a refactoring, absolutely. Yeah, you're trying to get the... I mean, in the end, it says, like, x equals 5, and it's like, yes, then you're done, right? But in the beginning, it's more complicated, and you're not changing, you're not allowed, that's the whole point, right, to change the correctness or the properties of the equation. Otherwise, yeah. it would change the result. The problem with Java, we have already the x equals equals 5. There is no need, you know, to, to be more, more complicated than this. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. So, after the university, what I understood, you didn't enjoy math that uh, uh, that much, but what about the, you know, the uh, theoretical computer science you learned? Was it something useful? You enjoyed it better than math? Or what was the story there? Yeah, so again, like I did complexity theory, that was surely interesting. Uh, we did you... some, some, some weird ass stuff, like uh, there are sublinear uh, algorithms for a lot of interesting things. Like, for example, determining, say you have an image and you want to determine whether the shape on the image uh, is convex or concave. Okay. Obviously, you can look at all the pixels and decide. But there are sublinear algorithms for stuff like that. So they work in logarithmic time, uh, which means uh, if the, if you, uh, if you double the size of the image, mm -hmm. the runtime of the algorithm barely increases at all. Of course, it's not 100% perfect, right? Yeah. You have to then, because it can't be. So then you have to have error bounds. And so we had in one, in one, in one class, we discussed this and showed proof, it's not just discussing this, right? It's like, okay, so this is the algorithm. What are the properties? What can we say about correctness? Uh, so you want to have guarantees, which okay. is, uh, if the, if the graph is, if the image is convex, then it will be recognized in so many percent of the cases, or these, it has to have these properties to be recognized. Um, the, sometimes the runtime is guaranteed to be logarithmic. Sometimes it's just expected to be, meaning the algorithm may 
when it finds unexpected data points, parse more and more of the image until maybe it did in the end took take in the entire image. But um, then in most cases, you will still have a good runtime, but just some bad cases, you'll have a longer runtime, which is the case, for example, like the sorting algorithms, right? Many sorting algorithms uh, every actually have, like a good sorting algorithm, if you give it uh, an almost sorted array, it will be done very quickly. Yeah. And a bad sorting algorithm won't. Like, it's a bad algorithm. It will just still do all the same things as if the array is totally random. Mm-hmm. Um, so stuff like that, right? So you have certain properties. There are streamable algorithms, which means what if each bit just comes by once? Like, you mm-hmm. can't go back. Mm-hmm. You just have to keep reading future bits, but you can't go back and repass re- 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 bits. So this that's stuff this that is actually discuss. useful, right? This is useful for it is, it, Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So you, I, did, I didn't know back then, of course. Right? No. I, like, it's okay. It's We would try figuring out why stuff on images is convex. Great. Why? No, it doesn't matter. We're doing it now. Okay. But you enjoy that or? <laughs> yeah, kind of. Like, that's the problem, right? So I, I think generally I did enjoy uh, these, even math. I did enjoy the, the, the exploring those ideas. And the, my problem was really more like the learning part because you have to. Yeah. Like, I got to say, compared to that, that Java is easy in the sense that you can, and it's not just Java, like I think like programming in general is easy in the sense that you can get, pa- you can get by, you can get really good results without having to sit down and study hard for like days or weeks on end. Yeah. Of course it helps. Like I'm not going to say like if you read a book about data structures or about design patterns that it's not useful, it's definitely very useful. But if you don't do that, even if you don't do that ever, you can still be halfway competent. Uh, yeah. Whereas when you don't do the math or computer science, like in, in university, in these like theoretical environments, if you don't sit down and try to learn the proof until you can not only like know it, but you can reproduce it and you can even apply the, the way that the proof worked to future problems, because that's what you're being educated towards. Right. Mm-hmm. The goal of this is that you can develop these algorithms on your own and then can prove these properties about them. But if you have like big data, so like huge graphs and you want to find out certain uh, where there are certain uh, connected subgraphs in some way, right? Uh, that you want to like if you if you have uh, or graph has certain properties. If you want to write a solution to that, it's great to write something. But if you want to be an established uh, computer science researcher or like even a competent team lead or you know somebody with a PhD in one of these uh, companies, you then want to sit down and be able to prove that yes, this works. Mm-hmm. Um, and in which cases does does it not work? Which properties must the graph have to fulfill these? Re- uh, Fulfill the requirements. That's, I think, something that um, that you're being educated towards, and that was what I was struggling with because then you have to sit down and you have to come home and you know study this shit for like four more hours. Mm-hmm. And I just I took the time. I just didn't do it. I'm really really good at you know procrastinating and pushing <laughs> out work. Yeah. And so that that's like it's it's totally my fault. So it was not the it was not a problem of the material. It was not the problem of uh, of me being too stupid or me not being interested. It was just I, I have I just have this this is this problem with you know sitting down like that and working on something which seems so I think I didn't get enough joy out of fixing these intermediate problems like understanding these single steps right mm-hmm. when I was done when I did do the work and when I was done with it a couple of hours I was like okay great I I, I did it great but I never had this uh, this end of a rush which I get with programming which I still get today I stream live right uh, about once a week. And still, that you can see this on stream sometimes. We're like, okay, let's try whether this works. And like two hours later, I'm like, yeah, yeah, it works. That's so great. Wow, that is so cool. Like, I'm really enthusiastic about having achieved the goal that I set out to achieve with programming. 
And I think that was just lacking. This was um, this uh, was this was the uh, streaming for the casual viewer. What you said, you know, at five minutes five minutes time, you know, on uh, on Friday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this was especially for him, right? So like, uh, um, yeah. um, regarding you said with the images uh, during my study, so I was already loaded with stuff, but there was one, you know, um, optional or additional classes. I said, okay, I can do this because so sounds fun. There's nothing to do. And this was called multimedia. So I, I thought, you know, we will draw some pictures or, you know, look <laughs> at JPEGs. And this was like crazy, you know, compressions, algorithms, and, and how JPEGs is compressed on everything. This was uh, pretty hard for uh, for additional classes. So uh, since then, I'm really um not not so fascinated by by multimedia you know yeah. what what i have to do you have to drink your tea because what makes me crazy there was the formal description and there was one famous guy but i don't think his name was laporte there was a different name but i will have to look it up otherwise i would just think about this and uh i would just cut it out later but uh i will have to find it this is um okay you so, can so there is yeah sure but there's also uh, a guy called Hor. H O A R E, and he no. wrote like, but that's that's sort of programming language. It's like a former language that can be used. Yeah, but this to, was uh, very famous. Uh, I think the language was STL or something like this, uh, not STL. Um, it was a formal language which is used right now. T L A plus, and the guy is temporal not... logic of actions. Yeah, that's yeah. Actually, that that should be close to what I was uh, writing my my thesis in. I mean, and, like, okay, it's a huge field, but yeah. Back to the show. I found the answer. It's not Laporte. It's is Lamport. L-A-M-P-O-R-T. And this is Leslie. And the language is T-L-A+. Now I focus on the show again. I just thought about, you know, the formal verification about the language. And now I have it. I will put it to the show notes. It is um, uh, Leslie Lamport and uh, uh, T-L-A+. And this has to be related with your work at the university, I think. Yeah, like when you look, when you, so I'm, I have the Wikipedia article open right now. Um, by the way, first appeared 1999, uh, but yeah. <laughs> so oh, you wait. Know, he copied you. That's the problem. It said implementation language Java. Yeah, this is why I thought immediately about that. And uh, Oh, nice. Oh, so it's under the hood, it's Java, because it seems to be like more, it says it's a, it's a testable pseudo, like writing pseudocode. So yeah, so what I would do is, um, uh, so in, in Wikipedia, it says as well. So the language con has a certain uh, a couple of definitions. Like it has, it has something. It's a state. It has uh, you can define behavior, a step, a stuttering step, whatever that is. Relations, state functions, state predicate, invariance, mm -hmm. temporal for temporal formulas, and they do this in a kind of a pseudocode as it looks. And what uh, what we would do is just use formulas for that, right? Like we would say for all states which the condition x y z holds, mm -hmm. there will never there's never a state reachable. For which the condition, you know, x, y, z prime holds. So the point of that is then you can prove that whenever the system successfully booted, mm -hmm. for example, it can never crash. Mm -hmm. And in general, these things are not provable. That's the undecidability problem. Mm -hmm. But you can limit the space that you're describing. If you can limit the space that you're describing, then you can. Uh, um, and that, as I said, that's very interesting when it comes to certain pieces of very simple, because at the moment, these systems uh, have to be almost laughably simple to be able to prove anything about them. Uh, also in realistic time, because this takes forever. Because what you're basically kind of almost doing is building the entire state space of the system and then verifying that certain formulas hold. Mm -hmm. But that was, I, I found that very interesting. Um, but once again, you know, I find it interesting to be like, if you, I would watch like, uh, 
a course on that that would give me the high level summary of what's happening in the field, like, you know, once a week or like a YouTube series, I would be totally into that. But not to the point where I spent like 20 hours a week yeah, sure. during regular coursework and then like 40 hours a week during uh, when writing my thesis. But in the Wikipedia article, it also stand, um, uh, states uh, temporal logic. So it was absolutely a rare. And uh, by the way, yeah. um, uh, Amazon S3 used TLA Plus to, ver to, to verify the log behavior inside the storage layer. So uh, it's actually very – and this is why I remember the guy. But uh, yeah, interesting. So, yeah, uh, definitely. but now we clarified that. So th this is nice. So you have to look at this maybe because should, it's in Java. Yeah, 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 I mean, you are Java passionate, you know, with your background, with temporal logic. Maybe you could do something great, you know, some small, very small open source project or whatever. Just play with it because I think this is now the, you are the perfect guy, passionate about Java and, and you have some background knowledge with temporal logic. That's like, I would never expected this, these two things to come together. That's so amazing. Yeah, you see, perfect uh, and that, that was a great, yeah, it was. But also still, it's just, it's just, in quotes, implemented on, you know what I can do? We can search if it's an open source. Is it open source? It's at least MIT license. Yeah. If we can find the sources, we can just update them to Java 17, right? Yay! Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah <of laughs> That's the, the biggest commit, you know. Uh, well, I, I will I will introduce everywhere no multi-line strings. This is my contribution. Yeah. You know, without yeah. breaking anything. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. I mean, like, yeah. And then the, the other thing is, uh, since the performance should play some role here, uh, for example, you know, when uh, when Valhalla rolls around, For example, yeah, Valhalla is too much. To, wait, wait a second. Until we reach Valhalla, because uh, what interests me after university, so yeah. uh, you knew a little bit Java, but you didn't learn Java at the university, right? You learned at the high school. What I understood. Yeah, so we did a little bit of Java at high school. Yeah, that's why I actually learned it in the sense of, yeah. or rather, that's why I got taught. Like, okay, so this is how fields work. This is how you know how these programming structures work. Yeah. So that's why I was taught how Java works. Yeah. And then at university, it would it would be used in different courses. We had some uh, some long. That, actually, the greatest things that uh, when it comes to working as a software developer, the greatest things I learned in university were not in the courses, but in these or rather actually well technically were also courses, but not like sit down and listen courses, but um, these group projects. Yeah. We had one thing like in fourth or fifth semester or whatever where it was uh i think like four people uh, we were implement games mm -hmm. um and we would like spend a couple of weeks on, on on that and that 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 was like that's so ridiculous uh, already my teacher in high school she taught me about uh the waterfall model okay and then at university we actually like literally had to do it by that right so they were really like they were taking us by by the hand through the entire like do the design now do this yeah. now do that now which is such a bad joke. Not only is Waterfall, okay, let's not even talk about that. I, I just assume that your listeners know <laughs> uh, why well, that's not maybe not the greatest idea. But just like to the, like who would take a bunch of students who have never worked on any meaningful software project and then say, like, okay, now you design a system up front. Yeah, but this is no, but this is normal, I would say, right? This is what you can expect. I mean, you know. This is yeah, but how can you, but how can you, like, I mean, even if you think waterfall works, it obviously only works if you have experienced people there who know what's coming. How can you how can you take, do that to students who obviously don't know what's coming because they've never worked in a team on yeah, a project like but that? But waterfall never worked. I was in a waterfall project, you know, with UML and everything, and and this project uh, uh, which worked, where we ignored the entire thing and we did our yeah. thing, you know, and then we said, okay, now we have the documents and we generated the documents from the source code afterwards and did, did tricks. Yeah, I think of course. 
it never works. It can never work. A waterfall it will never work except you know you you are building hardware or spaceship and uh, you have to use your uh, f uh, diploma or whatever you did diploma uh, to prove that the program is correct. So there is a more or less waterfallish project because you have to yeah. know a little bit in advance to know the hardware, the specification, the costs. So the, it's impossible to be highly agile if hardware is involved. But uh, in in a software project, you know waterfall is. Uh, almost mission impossible. And by the way, what I always say is uh, not only software. If you think about you no know, playing music, doing sports, or whatever you or, or learning something, it is never waterfall. It's not yeah. like in sport you're planning. You know, uh, I run a marathon, so I will run the first f first five minutes this speed and this speed, and and then it's okay. It will never work this way, right? You have to adapt, and this is yeah. I, I don't I don't know who who came up with the idea that waterfall can work. In something like software, because software is the only thing which you can change all the time. You know, in hardware, no problem. Even in construction, the waterfall doesn't work well because they always adapt to you know to changes. Yeah, so th there's are several things there. So uh, yes, first of all, um, software is probably uniquely well suited to something like agile because yeah, you exactly. can so easily go back. And even if your customers already use it nowadays, you still just change it. You know, under them. Yeah. Uh, some automatic update are running. They won't even notice if you don't screw up. So exactly. So software is obviously um, best suited to other approaches. And, and I really hate the word agile because it is like it is. You know, you cannot do waterfall and agile is normal. So, you know, stop because there's nothing to sell there. You know, you have to just, you know, make your software as quickly testable as possible. So, you know, the time to first run should be as short as possible. And if you're constantly running the software, you are somehow agile right so this would be my definition because you're constantly testing the software yes and you can use JUnit or whatever you have but make your software runnable as quickly as possible right this would be my agile definition yeah and as you say many things alive work like that as well but you have to say that many things also work like waterfall-ish so first as you said already engineering anything that involves yeah. hardware right so that yeah. includes obviously like building bridges and, and skyscrapers and stuff and yeah i think like there are other the reason why they have, i think are often specifically nowadays are overrunning budgets uh i think it's not so much the planning process i think it's more like the the the, the monetary and social incentives to build around that yeah. right so if you want to build you know if a city wants to build an airport like the one that's behind you i think and also the one that's that like berlin has famously yeah. <laughs> built an airport yeah, for it was very agile yeah <laughs> yeah and they built it like, like, i don't know how long they exactly built yeah. it, but i think i felt like for 10 years they were going to be ready next year yeah there was like a running joke uh, but they do have i recently checked they do have flights though so they are at some point they apparently opened at least partially at, at the point co is, corona time they opened <laughs> <laughs> amazing like that's great timing yeah uh, so yeah, but but the thing there is uh, the incentive is of course you know to, to the city wants to build it or you know the country whatever what they want to they want to build a project even private companies they want to build a project and of course they have to pick the lowest bidder yeah and so there's an incentive for everybody to bid low and be very like okay like everything you want to change yeah, you exactly. want to change the exactly. color of the signs that CR. costs like a million more yeah exactly because they make their money over change requests exactly and and that's that's not. I mean, once again, still waterfall, probably not the best approach to many things, but that comes then on top, right? That then, you, then you're stuck in a waterfall system where you have an incentive to bid low and then to overcharge with changes, which immediately creates this, uh, this conflict between the offer and the design that was agreed upon in the past and what the customer actually wants from day one you're basically, as a software development company and as a customer, on opposing sides of this. Yeah. Immediately, you're like, 
like as soon as the project, I mean, if you worked in commerce with, you know, with these kind of procedures and yeah. you know how that is, right? Yeah. Once the pros, once the, um, the company comes into like the 80, 90% margin of the agreed upon budget, they want to get done. Like they just want to get this project done because they still want to make money. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, the customer is like, I have to find every single comma that's wrong because if I don't and they give me the software, then I have to pay them big money to like afterwards, right? If the software yeah, this is, is yeah, this is a big software project. I exactly the same. So I would say, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, but once again, um, I think certain uh, stuff just has to be waterfall, and then yeah. I think waterfall. The, I think the doesn't work part is like there's 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 a there's a, there's a spread there, right? It depends on the experience, and if you did a project a bunch of times, and similar things, and you have to offer it again. Still, many companies at least have to have some kind of uh, of of estimation and de pre-design phase because that's how customers still often work, right? Like specifically, if you work for. Uh, at least in Germany, I'm pretty sure it's in other countries, the same thing, uh, for any kind of, uh, official, like, like a federal agency or something. Mm -hmm. They can't, even if they would want to, they just can't be like, okay, let's just do a contract. We estimate this costs 500,000 bucks. Let's just see where we went up. Let's be all agile. Like, mm -hmm. they, they can't, like, they don't allow. They have to do exactly the, the thing where you, you, you give them an offer. That's what it's going to be. That's what's agreed upon. And so I think it's still the reality for many, um, uh, for many companies and you know they make it work at least to a degree so i think the um, the let's say the amount of times it fails and the degree by which it fails mm -hmm. that varies a lot across companies yeah. uh, and that depends i would say largely well to this degree it depends on processes that are put in place yeah. but also it just depends on the expertise of the people involved and fun and that's why I and fun of the people you know expertise is one thing but if you really like what you are doing it will work because as you said you know java is not like rocket science you don't you don't need you know big experts you need someone who would really like to do something you know and then then it just happens i would say small motivated teams this is the yeah yeah, yeah. i would say and that that's something that we were actually at university so waterfall process aside which we had to draw like diagrams and we well i wouldn't say we hated this but we thought like this is just pointless work why yeah uh but you know then again you're at university you're in school you do pointless work all the time so we didn't question it too much. exactly this one here but then uh when the actual implementation started i had really a lot of fun and the, the weird thing about this is I did not realize until university is over that that was the fun part of studying computer science. That they, actually I did enjoy that. Like while I was doing it, I was like, well, I'm a theoretical computer scientist, you know, I just do this menial programming a bit on the side. I didn't notice that I enjoyed it a lot. And then I would sit down at times uh, when I had like I had to work on this project, but I also had to study for an upcoming exam. I would often distract myself from learning for the exam by working on that project because well that's also university work right so it's kind of it's kind of not procrastinating yeah. uh, and I went through a bunch of stuff there and I learned about ticket tra uh, issue tracking subversion and then just by being exposed to it I learned a lot about um, just Java right I still remember that was so great I remember uh, so there was always a professor with us right uh, when we would come into the labs and program on site we'd program at home a lot but also we would meet twice I think a week for like two hours each to sit in the lab and program there so somebody could, you know, just help us out with stuff. Mm -hmm. I remember we were putting stuff into a collection and we didn't find it. We're like, why can't we find this? It's, it's like, it has the same thing. It's like, yeah, you have to override equals. And that was the day where I learned about equals. I still remember that how the professor explained it to me that this is the method that gets called and this is what equality is decided upon. So you can't just throw in the same thing. You have to make sure that the, you know, Java recognizes it's the same thing. Then I learned stuff like that. I think I learned about hash code there as well. Oh yeah, I learned at some point really the difference between Java AWT list and Java utilist. Okay. <laughs> because like in the beginning of your program, you're just like, okay, uh, I want to use a list. Why are there two lists? 
are they the same? What's going on here? <laughs> and so I learned to practice that. No, they're not the same. And what's this? So I really like, like a bunch of the, just the practical things you have to know uh, in those exercises. And I think, I know that, that university is not there to, to, to teach you to become a software developer. But even so, since most computer scientists will end up that way, I think uh, it would be kind of nice to better prepare them for what's out there in the world. Because I really think, like, none of the systems we use, as a, again, are rocket science, right? Git isn't, uh, well, well, at a low enough level it is. But as a user, no. it's, it's, like, yeah. it's, it's, it's not easy to learn either. But it's not like, it's not something that you have to study for, for a year to get a grips with. You can just sit down and get a course on that, and then you can decently well, capable of solving everyday problems. Would be enough to the students say, you know, create your own open source project at Git in your, in Java, of course. <laughs> And yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, play with it and show us the results and create you know a small presentation what you did how you did it and what you learned. This would be enough, yeah. right? Yeah, and then all the steps, right? So it's yeah. Um, so what I actually or, or uh, team I projects, you know, even better. Uh, view yeah, students yeah. On, on on one Git project because then you have the branching and you know CI/CD and uh, as, as as a professor I would say you, you know it has to be fully automated uh, for automated uh, CI/CD fully in place and this would be enough. But back to you because uh, Wait, what yeah. What? Let, let me stick to that. Sorry, we probably have some time timetable in mind. I'm totally going to bust that. But here's the point: I did exactly that. That was that. What you just said, exactly my opinion as well. Lot of these tools, like uh, like uh, what unit testing, build tools, uh, then CI/CD, uh, issue tracker, version control system. If I didn't miss something, that's like the key components that you need beyond the language. That you need to not just be programming. That's why I usually make a distinction. Programming is just writing the code. And software development to me is more like everything around it as well. You know, separating work, doing reviews, making sure the tests are running, uh, using version control, all of that. And I think you know, these things are not that hard to learn, but when you never got in or rarely got in touch with them during university or whatever education you had before, and then you have to learn them all on the job, then suddenly it's so much. And on top of that come all the know, web frameworks and then, you know, the, the, all the AWS services and, so then there's always so much more on top. And I really feel like, um, I think, I'm not sure how it is nowadays, actually, but I think in general, uh, universities could do a better job to make sure that at least these basics are covered. And I did that when I gave a course uh, at, uh, I gave a course for like a year at a university, which is somewhat close by here. I did exactly that. We started with, uh, let's, uh, first, first half year, we learned the basics of Kotlin. Sorry. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, this is what ends with KT on this like data class and stuff like that, right? Yeah, exactly. So we picked that. Um, uh, by the way, what's your opinion of, of Kotlin? So I look at it a lot, but I have to say, uh, I don't think I would be a far more productive with Kotlin than with Java 17, to be honest. I mean, uh, it is... Productivity is... I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I have no idea how to judge productivity. My problem is as soon as something new comes out, my productivity tanks. You know how much time I spend refactoring for loops to streams that were perfectly fine as for loops just because I wanted to figure out how for loops feel and sorry, how streams feel yeah, and sure. where they work and where they don't. So productivity really like every time I get something new in my hands, productivity tanks because I'm too busy learning the new thing. <laughs> so I'm not sure whether I would be more productive in general, even after I learned everything. But, um, I think it's, I think it's very interesting. Um, you know, approach basically, maybe that's too simplified, but Kotlin is basically just like, kind of like Java++, right? Yeah, Doesn't like Groovy sense. was. You so, remember Groovy? Yeah, yeah, I do. I didn't use it, but yes. Yeah. But Groovy went one way, and I would say that Kotlin went the other way, right? Static typing, um, and they, like, for example, I like what they did about the type system with null. So I think what they did is, Java, Java works great the way it does, 
But some decisions made, you know, in the 90s, in hindsight, which is always 2020, uh, weren't ideal. No, I'm with you. I'm with you, Nikolai, because um, something different. My problem is, no, I'm. you are more on the educational side and I'm more from project side. And if you're running something in projects and you say Java, so this is an obvious decision. So we have JVM, we run Java. But if we say we are no more, we, you can do whatever you like on the JVM in a project, then, okay, some developers would pick, pick Kotlin, but I guarantee you others will pick Scala and as others will pick, you know, Groovy. And for me, the polyglot programming in a larger project, this is the beginning of the end. But why introducing such, you know, complexity without obvious, you know, benefits? So this is why I asked you about uh, about productivity. So I would say my opinion is, you know, just stick with Java 17. And if you don't like Java, then maybe, you know, it's time to move on to Go, Rust, or whatever you have. Ruby was one time, but there's no more Ruby. Uh, maybe Python. So I don't understand, you know, to switch language from Java to something else, you know, the benefits for me ha- have to be huge. Otherwise, it's not worth, you know, to running something similar to Java with, with not the same libraries as Java. So I would say, okay, if it's you not know, just, you know, 30% different than Java, I'm bored. So then I just <laughs> yeah then I just stick with Java 17. But if everything is different with you no know, like go to Go Rust, then I then I say okay Rust is even cool because you could you know uh, uh, transpile to uh, to Wasm or we pick you know uh, how it's called Swift from Apple because uh, not native compilation. So this is for me is the use case is clear, complete different ecosystem. Go for it. But I don't get it. I, I'm in Kotlin, but I get the same Java collection. Everything like Java, so I have to know Java. This is not no. This is not. Uh, I would say, um, it is even beneficial to know Java if you use Kotlin because it, the entire Java library is there, and uh, and then you have you know in your Maven there is a Java version, Kotlin version. You have to keep both somehow you know uh, up to date. So for me, I I just. You know, to use Kotlin in a commercial project for me, the benefits has to be huge, and I don't get it. So, but I had the same, you know, discussions with Jython back then, Groovy, Scala. I think um, I got know why you're still doing Java and not Scala. Why are you doing Java and not Groovy? I got the questions all the time, and everything gone, but Java remained. This is actually the strange part, right? And I have to say, Java 17, right, or Java 16 already, but 17 is LTS. They are getting better and better, and and leaner and leaner. So um, it is not as nice as Kotlin. No, you know, fun as function, and this is nicer. But I would say. For me, I, I don't get the reasons in commercial projects. Yeah, so there were a couple of interesting things you said. So first of all, you said, well, new platform might just offer me capabilities that the JVM just doesn't have. Yeah. And that's obviously, obviously right. Like if that's something that you either need or want, um, then sure, then that would be just, you have to pick that. Um, that said, the Java ecosystem is very powerful in many, very, in many ways, right? So mm-hmm. for example, like the number of mature IDEs, testing frameworks, mm-hmm. web servers, uh, web frameworks, uh, all of that. There's like they're, they're from the smallest to the largest projects, from industry standards with multiple implementations. We have so much to choose from, um, in a good way. So that could, talk, of course, also be a little bit overwhelming. But still, you have uh, so much choice of such like build tools. We have like uh, you can maybe let's include Bazel. We have with Maven, yeah. uh, Gradle, and Bazel. We have three really good build tools 
which is some ecosystems have none. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, really, I think like we're in such a fortunate position on uh, on the in the JVM ecosystem, and you can keep most of that if you pick a different JVM language. So that's why I would say, okay, if you need the capability of another platform that the JVM just can't offer, then that would be, of course, a reason. Maybe not enough, but that could be a reason to then switch. And but if you are if you are happy, like if you if you think no, I don't need any specific capability. If the JVM is amazing for me, uh, but for reason one reason or another, I don't think Java is my thing. And and, and this is language. and this is the interesting part, you know. In commission yeah, exactly. projects, you cannot just say uh, Java is not my thing. This is like you know, I gave you an example. If you go to Butcher or to somehow to Carpenter and they say, okay, my chainsaw is is not a thing. I would like to have something you know with nuclear uh, powered, you know, chainsaw. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, okay, cool for you, but w what problem does it solve, you know? Th th this is, this is, uh, we should be, th this is what I don't get. And uh, playing But around... you are aware of the fact that there are different producers of, of, of chainsaws and people who use some of them are, will, will, like some of them use like just this brand because this is like the best brand because it's made in America. I don't yeah, know, yeah, exactly. Or, or, or you know, trucks but, or whatever, right? But uh, yeah, but so it's so it's so it's kind of similar in the sense that. But they can explain why. You know, they say, okay, yeah, I'm using yeah, but, this brand because it never failed in the last twenty years, right? Or but something what I'm like saying, this. But there's a lot of subjectivity in there. Is what I'm saying, and that can happen to developers as well. Yeah, but, but, if, look, but if every I, I, developer I, I, picks something <laughs> different, then yeah. So I, I, I was in a, right. recently. I got code review. Yeah. Five, five developers, 20 microservices, and I think seven languages. And then I keep asking, and no one liked that. And at the end, we committed on Java because everyone agreed this is the only solution to the problem. Yeah, so first of all, I don't want to make the point that everybody should switch to other JVM languages, obviously. And <laughs> you the said that. I, <laughs> no, I didn't. No, this what, this with the title of the podcast, you know. Nikolai said, everyone switch away from Java. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm so going to get fired. No, seriously, though. Um, I think that... Uh, so first of all, to describe with the, with this polyglot situation, uh, that's, of course... Not ideal to say the least, and I think there's this new, there's this adage where you say uh, is an adage. What is it in English? Whatever. Uh, pick the pick the tool, the best tool for the job. Yeah. But I think that's that's a bit. There's a caveat there that doesn't get mentioned a lot, and that's what if the best tool is just better by exactly. not too much of a margin. Exactly. But but the specific tool will be a different one for each thing. So once again, I said you write a project which consists of a bunch of microservices or whatever different different sub projects and for each of the sub projects, some other language has like a tiny, like a like a five percent or whatever advantage over over Java, and then you end up with like five languages in that project together. That's not ideal, so that's really not a good situation to be in either. But what I want to say is, what I want to say was that what I think is really important uh, to 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 mention is what you already said. Like there were already all these languages that were going to make Java obsolete, right? Yeah. Even languages on the JVM, and most of them are not having. Let's at least say they have not a growing market share at this point. Uh, and I think that's something that is really hard because Java does have a large development team behind it. Like the entire OpenJDK community is pretty large yeah. and it's working on this. Not, you know, not always to everybody's preferred speed, but they are continuously working for this on this for decades now. And it shows languages started out with, okay, let's make, we have tabula rasa. Hey, hey, regardless speed, I really impressed on the speed of Java development. No kidding. Recently, you, yeah, it picked up. Yeah. Yeah. But I yeah. mean, it's crazy. And I mean, even, you know, the entire Oracle team did always a great job. I mean, this is, I, I was always amazed, you know, uh, how, how fast it actually is, is implemented. And 
how backward compatible it is. You know, it is it is uh, not a big deal to to you know implementing features and breaking everything. But uh, yeah, yeah, it is a great great job. I have to say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and making them making uh, these new features look like Java and not like something that was bolted on the side, which yeah. is entirely different. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, but but so, with new language can always be okay. We don't have users. We can just fix all the mistakes of the past. Start out fresh, and that's what we're going to do. But the problem then is, uh, can they? So they have a head start there, right? So let's say when Kotlin was created or when Scala was created, I'm just going to make up numbers. They're like a 20% productivity head start over Java. I think mm -hmm. you cannot calculate or think about it that way. But just you know, as a as a, as a thought experiment, can they then keep mm -hmm. the pace? But, or will that 20% be? Exactly. Can they keep the pace, or will that be shrinking? And I think that's that's what happens. Usually but 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 you you're right. But in in the case of Kotlin, they created Kotlin to have a decent uh, experience on Android, which is perfectly fine. I what this was yeah. great great job. This is what I get. This was an old Java, so the Kotlin was a perfect use case for Android. So this is what I perfectly get. You know, and as you already said, right now let's say Kotlin is ahead of Java because of features you like. But Java will not stand still. You know, in one point of yeah. time, Java will keep up, and then maybe Kotlin is not as interesting as it is. And what also interests me, what happens in one point of time? You know, Google with the Android, they will say Kotlin is no more a system language. We have our own, you know, language Go or whatever. This can happen, and then whether Kotlin will still be the thing. You know, this is also what would interest me. What happens if if the next Android will be no more Kotlin? Let's say. Could happen, you know. This would be the interesting observation. What happens with Kotlin then? Yeah, I mean, to a degree, you always bet on when you use a language. You always bet on the on the organization behind that language, whether it's a public comp a private company or whether it's like you know, like the OpenJDK, like a public group. Yeah. Well, I mean, the OpenJDK is a public community, is large, but almost all the people working as part of, of the OpenJDK, or rather as members of the OpenJDK, do so because their employer pays them for yeah. it, right? Yeah. So yeah. even though it's a it's a contribution of individuals. If like all the companies would stop paying people on that, of course Java would come to stand. So that's true for other languages as well. So the question is how resilient, how much do you trust the organization behind that to keep your things running? And what I think is it depends on the project as well, right? If you're writing a project that you're using for, you know, to track your uh your, your table tennis results at work, like use the fanciest thing you can find exactly. to try it out, to to see what works and um to see how much of an advantage you maybe have over the other languages. And use that as a as a testing ground. And I think for every new project, it's not just where which situation are we now, but what do we think? How long the how long the project exists? What's like the timeline that we have in mind here? Is it a couple of years? Is it a decade? Is it two? And and, and then how, who and, do you think can support that for for that long? How many people will work on the project? Because what commercial pro, uh, companies are doing, they are hiring one company and they do something. And then another company takes over, you know, and does something, and then another uh, company completes. And if the first company chooses, you know, Kotlin, but the next one would like to have Scala, and the third one Groovy, then you have a hot mess. But if you say, okay, on Java, JVM, there is Java, there's a less discussion because we already committed to the very, you know, how, how to call it, the, the, the lowest possible programming language you can get on JVM. And uh, what you... What you uh, mentioned, uh, Kotlin. I would cut. I would. I would use Kotlin absolutely on Android, and I would love all the features because this is the system language of Android. I wouldn't try, you know, to to use Java on Android if there is Kotlin available because this is, you know, the the language of the platform. This is. I didn't keep up 
are they still using like they used like Java seven and a half or something on Android for the longest time? Is that still the case? What what Java version can you actually use on Android? Uh, I, I don't even there is not a real Java because of problems, but. Uh, uh, I know, right? That yeah, Android, yeah. Android Studio and and uh, and uh, and uh, JetBrains um, is the company. The IntelliJ uh, is yeah. the Android Studio uses Kotlin as the official language. So Kotlin became the official language for Android. This is how Kotlin be- became popular. Yeah, yeah, but but Java obviously still works, right? You could still do it in Java. Yeah, it has to. Yeah, but uh, I don't know what what's the recent version. I don't even know. Yeah, because that that's of course plays a role there, right? Like, but is it pointless anyway? Because we could use JavaFX and you know ship uh, native executables on Android. This would be exactly so. This is what. Okay, forgot about that. But <laughs> perfect. So, but what you said earlier about Java basically being the the lowest common denominator, I, I think I, I so at any given point in time, that might actually be the case. That of all the languages, that's the one that you can most easily agree on but I also think as i said earlier java's always keeping up uh, sorry always 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 moving forward and the and the question is can these other not only can these other languages keep their advantage if they have one but also what happens if things diverge because the java improving java means improving the language but also improving the the uh, virtual machine mm-hmm. and while things in the virtual machine are usually more general than they are expressed in java specifically it's still the case that if Java moves one way and, for example, picks a feature that is similar to what other languages do, but, you know, slightly different, you know, because everybody has their own kind of data classes, there are always subtle differences. Now Java has records. Uh, they're, you know, somewhat similar, at least to a degree, but they're not the same. So there are also these little divergences. And I think they also make it, you know, make it in the future... For example, uh, it, it may be harder to benefit from uh, JVM improvements for other languages mm-hmm. if the way that they turn out do not fit the model of the way that other languages picked something, right? Yep. So maybe as a performance improvement for value types. Mm-hmm. But, and I'm totally making this up, I have no idea, but maybe, you know, Kotlin or Scala's values don't match on that one-to-one, and then we can benefit from that, right? Yeah. So, like, for example, OSGI has trouble adopting the module system because the underlying, the underlying rules are not exactly the same, and they're not the same in the sense, like, well, you cannot make one OSGI bundle into one module that doesn't work, because, for example, OSGI allows circular dependencies, I think, or something like that, and the module system doesn't. So suddenly in a situation where you now have a very similar feature in two languages, um, but not necessarily both of them can benefit from JVM improvements. So I think not only will Java always keep improving and potentially catch up and then uh, surpass other languages, there will also have um, there will also be these small divergences where Java can ben- better benefit from JVM improvements and developments over time. Mm-hmm. What interests me right now, this is a very interesting discussion, but what interests me is, after university, what was your first job? Yeah, so uh, I'm I'm a bleeding heart lefty. So I was like, okay, well, I want to do something meaningful with my job. So uh, what can I do? I'm a programmer, so that sounds like, well, I'm going to be one at least. That sounds like technology. You know what? Climate change, that's something that interests me or rather that, that bothers me. Um, so I went searching for companies, organizations that work in that space Mm-hmm. With something related to renewable energies, specifically, that use uh, that has something to do with programming. So one company I um, I applied at is I think they're called Lichtblick, if okay. I remember correctly. So that's another that's it's uh, then Hamburg, another Germany, mm-hmm. where they uh, are developing. Oh boy, what's the word? Blockheizkraftwerk. They're developing these things that you can put in your in your cellar, where that burn gas and give you warmth and electricity at the same time. Great idea. Mm-hmm. And uh, they will put that into people's houses and then load balance them. And they're writing the software for that. And that was Visual Basic Net. So that's why they didn't pick me, which okay. is a shame, but also their loss. 
Uh, <laughs> and um, what I, where I ended up at was the Fraunhofer Institute here in Karlsruhe. That's the only reason why I'm in Karlsruhe. I just applied all over Germany. And um, what they were doing, they were creating energy models. So when you ever hear that the European Union projects that by 2030, that so many percent of electricity could be renewable, or that appliance mm-hmm. appliance energy consumption will behave like this in the coming 30 years, or that, uh, for example, um, demand side management of load uh, could be introduced and have that in that degree. These are all things that uh, scientists at that at that institute are working on, and I've supported all of those with uh, software development because they're writing models, they're writing um, computer models of these different aspects of the of the energy market and the energy uh, system. And I would help them with that. And that was amazing. Like, I really enjoyed working there. I really enjoyed working on something that has this impact and that is that meaningful. Was it Java? But as soon, it was Java, yes. Um, actually, one of them turned out later. We switched, One of them was uh, Visual Basic Net because it evolved from an Excel sheet <laughs> okay. into Visual Basic in Excel. was a VB, and then VB6. Okay. The whole code base was such a mess. It was, it started, like, they, like it was from, I think, Excel sheet and then Visual Basic in Excel and then was transformed automatically, I think, to Visual Basic 6 project and then later to VBNet. It had all these layers. And uh, then uh, some student was hired to work on that. And he was like, basically, screw this. <laughs> We're going to re-implement this. And because he had a really good idea too. So he developed a system that I then later maintained. So it was a little bit of, of VBNet, but a little bit of C-sharp for some project as well. But most of it was Java. Okay. And like once, once I got the hang of it, uh, you know, C sharp and, and Java are very similar. And, uh, although C sharp did have a couple of things that Java didn't. And then VBNet and C sharp, those are also kind of similar. So it was kind of like, so this family of languages, like I learned them all at the same time, but I spent most of my time in Java and that's where I learned the most. And that's where I always felt uh, most at, po- at home and most comfortable with. Okay. And which Java version was it? Was it more than Java already? <laughs> Java 11, 8? Yeah. So that's, no, so that's the funny part. Uh, I, I didn't. I didn't know that there's such a thing as Java versions. Really, okay. I've been programming with Java since, as I said, like 2001. So I have no yeah. idea whether which Java version that was, 1.3 or 1.4, probably. And then during my time at university and at work, all the versions up to 1.7 came out. Mm-hmm. But I was not so familiar with the languages and the API, and specifically 1.6 and 1.7 weren't such huge changes. I didn't notice. Like okay. I just didn't realize <laughs> that, that Java actually changes. Or do I know? I just download JDK 1.7, whatever. I don't know what that means. Yeah. Uh, I just I just write code. So, and then I heard like this thing about lambdas. What's what's lambdas and Java 8? Uh huh. So I looked into that, and I remember we were on holiday in South Africa in uh, in 2013, and I remember that. <laughs> why, Gabby, my, uh, my wife, she was like exploring uh, some town and I was like, she, I think she went shopping or something. And I was like, you know what? I got to stay here. I want to try this thing out. So I sit, sit in this kind of nice apartment looking out over, uh, probably what is it down there? Atlantic or Pacific Ocean? It's, it's kind of both, right? No, no, sorry, sorry. It's not Atlantic. It's Atlantic. Sorry. It's not Pacific. It's Atlantic or well, whatever. Looking out over the water. Yeah. And. But I was mostly looking at my computer trying to understand these arrow thingies because I was reading a blog post about Java 8 lambdas okay. and what they were all about. And so, okay, what's this arrow thing doing? Okay, so a functional interface? That's so interesting. So I spent part of my holiday sitting at my work laptop and experimenting with Java 8 lambdas because I was like thrilled. Oh, that's a cool thing. I didn't know that exists. And uh, then that was the first time that I actually got in touch with the Java feature before it came out. So that's also when I realized that, oh, Java is being worked on and it is being developed. And I read back then also, I read like so many blogs when I started working 
I knew nothing, right? I knew a bit of Java and that was it. And everything else I learned, not everything, but most of it, I really learned from reading a lot. I spent each evening like an hour. That's what I should have done in university, by the way. But I hadn't, didn't have the, the apparently enough of the motivation. Uh, reading up on stuff like, you know, what, what build system are and that random blog post, you know, by about whatever, really, as long as it relates to software development and, and Java. And yeah, that was when I started to understand more of the ecosystem, the community around it until there was basically just the language. Mm -hmm. And that's when I better understood the tooling around that. And, you know, the whole entire blogosphere and there are conferences and there's uh, an, a project, OpenJDK, that's improving Java. And that's all I learned all of that, I think, over the course of like 2013, 2014. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, you know, this whole thing is fun. Maybe I can write a blog. And so that's when I started my blog. Where was it? Was it 2015? Okay. Let me look. <laughs> I should know probably, but I'm going to look it up. First blog post was, yeah, it was end of 2014. That's, okay. that's when I started blogging. And, uh, yeah, I started with a little bit like my Java 8 experience. I used Java 8 at work. Basically, the date came out. So I wrote about optional a bunch and I looked up stuff on the mailing list to better understand optional, I discovered the mailing lists and discovered what a treasure trove of information they are, but also how impossible it is to find anything on them. Okay. <laughs> like when in, even, even sometimes I know I read this mail and I still can't find it. Like it's so horrible, <laughs> but it's like, it's a treasure trove. Like if you can, if any of the listeners can make time to subscribe to like one of the mailing lists and at least skim them. There's such good conversation going on. Not all of them, right? But, and there's also these, these JFR reviews going on. But many of the, of the conversations are so good. You can learn so much about these features and not just how they work, but why are they the way they are? Because mm -hmm. it turns out when I think about how, what that feature should look like for an hour, I come up with the vastly inferior solution to when a bunch of people think about this for a few months or even years. Yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> What happens then? You stayed at Fraunhofer or what you did? Uh, so yeah, at some point I was actually so interested in Java. I wanted to like, I want to do more software development. I want to learn more, uh, not, not just Java, but software development in general. I felt like I could not grow there because I was the only software developer there. Oh, <laughs> uh, to, towards the end, it's like, it was like, they're all scientists, right? For them, it was kind of, it was really kind of cutting edge to have to hire somebody who cannot, uh, because like, you know, if you're working at a Fraunhofer Institute, um, you're not just sitting there getting grant money to waste. You have to apply for, for research, um, projects. And, you know, you have to write all of these, these reports. You have to, like, it's a lot of work that is directly dealing with, okay, I have to find somebody to, to purchase, uh, sorry, to purchase to, to finance my research. Mm -hmm. So each, and I, I don't to them. I'm just a cost factor, right? Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't, nobody's going to pay me money for any research. Mm -hmm. I'm just doing the back office work for them. Mm -hmm. So for them, it was kind of unusual to have that. And while I was there, they built it out. So at the end, when I left, we had, I think, two and a half. I was one of two and a half uh, software developers. Mm -hmm. But still, I was the most experienced, which is not good because I was not very experienced. So I felt like I want to learn, learn more about how the software development stuff works. So I was looking for a professional software development company, and I found Dizzy here in Karlsruhe, which is also it's a really great company. What, is, like, what interests me about Fraunhofer, was it like yeah. a backend development? So you wrote Java servers or command line? No. It was, uh, it's, it's, uh, it was one... Well, there were different projects, right? But each project individually was one huge uh, app mm -hmm. that was not server, that was not, not web-based. I'm, I'm struggling. I don't want to call it a desktop app because some of them didn't even have a UI. Mm -hmm. So we wrote one where the model that where the, the the researchers would write their model in Java. That's why it was already there as a Java project or in Visual Basic Net. So they would formulate their assumptions and their the behavior of the systems and all of that. They would program that out in Java. Mm -hmm. And I would just help them. I would just be like, okay, so you need to do this. This is how you design this. 
this is how I can use Java features. Oh, you need sometimes I needed special infrastructure that I would implement. Um, for example, uh, we wanted we had a, had a lock and we wanted to lock the messages to database so that mm -hmm. you can then observe them. Um, uh, so that's it's, over time we actually built. Uh, yeah, in that sense, at the end it was kind of like a client-server thing where you could launch. Because the models take a long time to compute, mm -hmm. we would create what's called a lin uh, linear programming mm -hmm. problem, mm -hmm. and you can use, solve that with uh, simplex. I think is the algorithm, and cplex is one implementation of that, the C library that that solves that. And towards the end, that would take days. Like oh. literally, would, mm -hmm. the model would run like five days. Most of that in C. So like four four and a half days was just C library crunching this huge linear program. And then you had a couple hours before and after of Java code that was shuffling the data around because a linear program is just numbers and additions and multiplications. Mm -hmm. It's extremely tough to put, not extremely tough, but like for taking a real world situation and transforming that into a meaningful linear program, uh, a problem, mm -hmm. program, anyway. And then the, interpreting the result is not, is not trivial. So a lot of the Java code was basically busy with that. Uh, a so, fun uh, fact, uh, I work once with uh, researchers. They knew linear algebra for optimizations. And yeah. uh, and they wrote a J Java software, server-side Java software. And I, I had to review the software and help them a little bit. And what's turned out, what they wrote was perfect from my point of view because there was not like, you know, lots of over-engineering. You know, the entire structure and the Java classes were to the point. So for me, it was like, like crazy. I mean, you're really experienced Java developers. They know we have no idea. So they just, you know, whatever they had in mind. So they they wrote Java classes with nice names, with, you know, readable methods. And um, and the pro program worked, you know, without any flaws until now. So it is actually a very important piece of software. And uh, yeah, this was my, my experience recently with linear algebra for uh, optimizations. Yeah, mine wasn't quite like that. So they really had... Oh. I would say I always I always said sometimes in jest sometimes not so friendly. Uh, this is imperative programming in Java. Okay. So there were classes there with like there were even methods with hundreds of lines. Yeah, but but uh, no on the server side it is almost you have uh, re this is like request scoped you know so they have one method for the transaction so it's not like it is different if you're building something which runs all the time as a singleton you be you are more object oriented on the server you are procedural anyway. You know, because everything is about transaction. So method calls method calls meth method, and you are done, right? It's different kind of programming, I would say. Um, yeah, yeah, but but the thing is, so there was like there was also a lot of primitive obsession going on. The problem was the problem was that it was really a, a hard to uh, when they would have a problem, it was really hard to to to, to understand what the code was intended to do oh, or whether okay. what right. So if you have like a couple hundred lines that just read integers from arrays. Which have great names like I don't know values or something, okay. <laughs> and push them into this uh, into this uh, linear program, for example. It's really hard. Like, what is this? Like, why don't you have a class that's uh, that's called oh, right. I don't okay. know power plant that has some information about a damn power plant? So my it scientists like... were better. My scientists were yeah. definitely better. Okay, so what what happens in dizzy or dizzy? You said dizzy. Yeah, it's not dizzy like the English word of not being quite uh, full capacity. It's D I S Y, <laughs> <laughs> which is funny in English though. Um, they're working on um, uh, geoinformational systems. Okay. GIS. Uh, also, they have a big Java app that does that, and customers of municipalities or uh, federal agencies, like in Germany, for example, 
in Bavaria, their hunters have to register each kill. Okay. And that has to be publicly available information. So they, for example, use that, right? So hunters enter their data, and then you have a map where you can see where they shot, I don't know, boars. Okay. Uh, so stuff like that. And uh, that was a lot of fun, too. That was a lot of Java as well. And I learned a lot there, and some of my uh, best friends uh, are, are still working there. And one great thing that I learned there was how a big professional-run software system works. Because when I was working um, at at it easy i also occasionally had like a small tool to create i would just pick dependencies for example that's one thing that i learned at dizzy it was just pick dependencies who have like okay i need that class it's in guava let's just take it that's oh that's that's that uh, class already exists let's pick that and i really learned how in a large project you can't just like pull in dependencies willy-nilly left and right because that's actually value and i didn't understand the first at the first time i was like i want to use uh whatever library and, and my, the architect as i said one of uh, one of the good friends I got there, like, let's not do that. I was like, what, why? I didn't understand, like, why would you not just pull in a dependency? And, it's, and he really taught me, like, dependencies, they're, they're a liability. Yeah. <laughs> if we really need it, sure. But not just because, you know, you want to write this code slightly more functional and you need to try. Sometimes what he did with me was like, let's check the license. If it works, let's just pick the one class and please let's not pull in an entire newest dependency tree uh, just for, you know, a single class that you were going to use. This is a great architect, actually. So uh, this is yeah. a, unusual. What I still fighting, you know, with uh, millions of dependencies in... in yeah. yeah. And like, he's great. As I said, we, I worked on Java 8 there from day one. Uh, I was... I got half of a month of uh, part-time work on updating to Java 9. We were running on Java 9 like two months before the release. Everything was working. Uh, we just we spent a lot of time with that. Uh, I spent mostly spent a lot of time with that. But that was great, right? They, they see the need to be up to date. Mm -hmm. And I always say, look, this is a, this is by now almost, by now it's, it's probably a 20, 20 year old, maybe even more by now, Java code base. Mm -hmm. Like it started very early on. Mm -hmm. Um, it's quite large. It has still a large dependency tree. If we made it to Java 9 pre-release, People can update to Java 11 now. I mean, of course, every project is different, yeah. but I think from the from just from monolithic old large code base, we're not in a in the best position to start this update process. Yeah. And we made it work, and we made it work at a time where that often meant like providing pull requests or fiddling with command line options. And nowadays, most problems can be fixed by just update just updating dependencies, which is not trivial. But you know, if you can't do that in your project. Just updating dependencies, mm -hmm. and you're probably already there. You can probably just bump the Java version after, and you're done. Uh, not necessarily, but yeah. So I think it got easier. You kids don't know how hard it was back then. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, actually, so I started to you know before Maven and before Ant. So uh, everything was in the project of the JBuilder, for instance, right? So uh, this was Mission Impossible almost because every project had different structure. So yeah, now you know I, the entire. When I was when I was working out by Fraunhofer, Maven already existed, but I didn't know and nobody else did either. So the way I got dependencies was looking for jars and downloading them. Okay, <laughs> So very I good. basically yeah. had like a pre-Maven experience post-Maven. <laughs> what happened after Dizzy? Yeah, at Dizzy I got interested in more like I started writing the blog. Uh, that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed that. And then I started going uh, to conference at Java user groups and then conferences talking about Java. And then that part grew. And uh, I had a lot of fun at DZ, and I really like the people there. But then one thing, and maybe that's also, maybe they would make the decision differently now was they did not support me in those endeavors. 
Okay. So I would have to go to conferences on my own time. Okay. Uh, even though I would be speaking there, having their logo on my slides, and that kind of miffed me. I was like, well, I'm doing all this work, and I do it because I enjoy it. But getting a, like some support would be kind of nice. Yeah. And I think that was one of the reasons why when when uh, I got an offer to work as uh, a site point. Do you know the, the website SitePoint? SitePoint.com? Yeah, I heard about it. Yeah. They had a Java channel a couple of years ago. I was the editor. You'd never heard about it because I sucked at my job, apparently. <laughs> okay. So, um, and they offered me, because I was already kind of active in the Java community a little bit, and they asked, like, hey, we want to launch a Java channel. Do you want to um, do you want to be the editor? I was like, yeah, that's, I want to do that. And may, maybe I would not have jumped ship um, if DZ would have been supporting me a little better. And I, I think they're better at that now because I think <laughs> I saw that it, maybe it was a little bit of a mistake. Um, so, yeah, but uh, that was the reason why I decided to uh, then become the editor at SidePoint. And then that, that's basically mean I became self-employed. Mm -hmm. And from then on, I did a bunch of things. I would help people with their Java migrations. I would teach people about Java, like, like you know, doing in-house courses. Um, I would still work for DZ as a freelancer. On, a, on on some smaller projects, uh, we organize Accenture together. So Dizzy is um, organizing my uh, um, not my own our own conference. It, okay. The last one was actually uh, what was it, twenty something twenty eighth of September, I think. So a couple of days ago. Nice. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, Dizzy is not only contributing uh, financially, but also with manpower. So or actually, it's all woman power that they contribute. So we're like a couple of people working on that, and so they're um, pushing that as well. The conference and. So yes, we still work a lot together, but then I got self-employed and I was really happy with all of that. And I was like, uh, doing great. Um, I did these trainings that was cool. And I did, um, I did, had time to write on blog, blog posts and go to conferences and speak and all of that. And then last year, Oracle comes. So other companies already reached out whether I want to, you know, work for them in this or that capacity. So I was like, eh, in the end, like, you know, I want to keep writing or publishing or talking or shooting videos or streaming about Java. And that's, that's just what I'm, what I'm doing now. And then Oracle was like, you know what? You, you do what you do, but for us, like, you know, we just, we just basically, we just pay you to keep doing what you do, but more. And that was really great because I was, there was, there's always this tension between providing the content that I do provide for free and my blog and my YouTube channel is way too small to monetize any of that. Uh, so I always had to earn money elsewhere. As I said, I do in our trainings. So that's, uh, that's not a bad job at all to do, but there's always this tension between do I sit down and write a blog post or do I, you know, try to find somebody to do a training for? Yeah. There's always this tension between something that I potentially want to do a bit more, but doesn't give me, doesn't pay any bills or doing the other thing. I would sometimes feel bad. I would give a week long course at a customer, which is great because it pays well. And that was good. But then I was like, okay, but now I didn't publish any blog posts or, you know, do I did any of the other stuff. So I was always like caught in that tension between most of the, not most, but at least half of the time that I spend is spent on free stuff that I really enjoy a lot, but I also have to balance that with, with, um, earning income. And so what, uh, one of the important part, one of the reasons why, um, when Oracle made me an offer to become a Java developer advocate, uh, while, while after some back and forth, because I really was like, I'm really happy with all this self employment stuff. One of the reasons why I picked it was just that, that this tension goes away. Mm -hmm. Now I can do what I like doing. Uh, like talking to you right now, I would have done that anyway, definitely, because it's a lot of fun. But now even it's part of my job. Now I don't have to, when I hang up, be like, oh, shit, now I have to do something else because I still need to pay my, you know, my breakfast. Now it's like, well, this is two hours of work done. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. And uh, when it happened? When you joined Oracle? Uh, so I joined in the middle of February this year. So just like ah, about eight uh, months ago. I, I didn't knew that. I think you are longer an uh, Oracle employee. See? 
I, I Everybody know. was like, that's a great fit because I basically have been doing that work anyway. I've been running around hyping Java for years now. Yeah. Uh, so that's why it's a good fit, right? I don't have to say anything differently from what I said back then. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, th I have your book, I think. You've wrote a book about JPMS, right? We're not supposed to call it that, I learned. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> okay. Because I have it. It's just, I think, from Wiley. Can it be? It's just like. No, that, the boo no that's the bad one. That's from Sander Mac and Paul Beckwith. No, 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 no. This was the this is what I uh, didn't enjoy it at all. I mean, your book. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> you don't have to say that, Adam. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, and I saw your blog, and I, yeah. I, I I don't know whether we met. In one no, I don't point, think, one I don't point think we somewhere. did. We did. You mean? Uh, no, I don't. I don't think we did. And and uh, I say, okay, who are you actually? I have to invite you here, you know, to 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 find about you. And it was actually fun. What I really would like to do is. Uh, to invite you back because now it gets too long, and then yeah, ju just talk about Java features. What what I really excited, you know, Java features, whatever you are doing, Valhalla or whatever you wanted to mention already, and you know, talk about Java 17 or whatever you have. And, yeah, there's, uh, this, there's so this many great things, right? The yeah. current Java versions, the release cadence, the the LTS cadence, exactly. The and, and I could invite projects. you know, once a month, if you like, just talk about Java. Because, <laughs> but, but the very first you know, episode was just like that, you know, that uh, I know what to expect from you. And now we can just focus on content, I would say. Ah, so you were just betting me. I mean, if, if that's all you did, Adam, you don't have to publish this. If it's just you want to talk to me, I'll just... <laughs> no, no, I will I'm just talking up as a loss. I will talk about Java. Uh, hey, there's one trick. We know what, why I'm doing this, because I don't have to prepare, you know. I ask whatever I would like to know, and then we have the first episode, and the next one is about content. <laughs> nice hack. Okay, so so yeah, exactly. It's it's a nice air hack. Nice. Uh, so you're gonna uh, uh, you're gonna you're gonna prepare them for the next one. You're gonna be better prepared, Adam. <laughs> yeah, I mean you are the expert. In in worst case, I will ask you questions. No, no problem. So where Just people that I can, have to prepare. Yeah, where, where people. Uh, can find you on the internet, you know, your blog and your Twitter and your Oracle link, whatever you like. They, they, I don't think there's an Oracle link. If there is, I don't know. Uh, okay. So I'm NipahFX everywhere. My website is NipahFX.dev. I'm NipahFX on Twitter. I'm NipahFX on YouTube, on GitHub, on Twitch. I stream about once a week. I'm going to for a two-week hiking trip starting tomorrow. Mm -hmm. But uh, continuing end of October, I usually stream every Thursday evening in Central Europe. So that's usually like 7, mm -hmm. 7 p.m. my time. 7 p.m. Uh, Twitch every other example. week? Uh -huh. about, okay. No, about every week. But I start. But week. now I'm taking a break. Uh, but you can, if you go to nipafx.dev, uh, at the top you will find uh, a link in one of the menus. You'll find a link to a schedule that's always up to date. I go to a bunch of conferences. Yeah, I think there's... Uh, I think that's the, those were all the things. If I don't and, and what are the topics anything. usually you like to talk about? Mostly? Java? Yeah, so it. like... Yeah, so really, what I what I started doing basically since since Java eight came around, I started being interested in what's what's new, what new stuff is coming. Okay. Uh, because the advantage of that is that you don't actually have to know anything because nobody knows anything, right? If I want to tell people how to write, how uh, for example to design good desktop applications or microservices or high performance applications with Java, you actually have to have done that for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. You can't just come in and be like, well, I read two blog posts about microservices. Let me, well, I think some people do that, but, <laughs> but technically you shouldn't. Yeah. And uh, the good thing about new features is nobody knows them. Nobody right. has two years experience with text blocks. Well, it, no, maybe now they do, but not back then when they came out. Uh, so that's why it's actually quite easy. What I do is I read the jabs, I read the mailing lists. Now I get to actually occasionally ask the people working on that as well. What are your intentions behind that? What were your goals? Why is the feature shaped like this or that? And then basically I report back because that's something I'm interested in. Not only what is the new feature, what can you do with it? But I also like the more I work on this, the more I realize 
a very interesting story is usually hidden mm -hmm. in why is it the way it is mm -hmm. and maybe why it wasn't like that before. For example, remember up until Java 9, so well, in Java 9, it changed. Yeah. You had to hey, Nikolai, we have to do it the next time. Otherwise, we'll ah, be for, 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 for two, for two hours. But you know what I will do? I will move closer to the mail server, OpenJDK mail server. I will receive, you know, the emails a few milliseconds earlier than you, what, you know, the brokers are doing. And then I will be more <laughs> up to date than you. Then we can have a fight in the next podcast. Okay. Thank you a lot. And I will invite you back this year in one part of time. You will find a date for yeah, sure. Yeah, cool. That would be great. Thank you. Bye. Bye.